Good evening. Welcome to the Oasis service. It's good to be with you. Revelation chapter 10. And we are going to get through the chapter. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, no, what was are. interesting, and I want to clue all of you all in here, full uh, honesty in church, this uh, message we have notes prepared for was written a week early. Uh, this is what we had prepared. Uh, my father had uh, obviously a lot of emergencies coming up in uh, you know church live administration and so forth. So he asked me, could you get the notes done? You uh, kind of know how to do that thing. So I said, okay, I'll stay here late on Tuesday night. I don't have much else to do. I'm single. So um, I got the notes done, and then Peter and my father made the cardinal sin of teaching what God actually wanted them to. What? They, went, they went completely off my notes. And that entire night I was stewing over this in pride and in anger and just saying, of all the hard work that I put into these notes, why did you do what God told you to do? And so <laughs> uh, just pray for me. I got to grow up. But uh, nonetheless, we're continuing off where they left off. Revelation chapter 10 uh, right. introduced us to a very impressive heavenly creature. He's referred to as an angel because he has a message. That's what angel means. Mm -hmm. And uh, his characteristics, as Peter and my father talked about last week, uh, reflected aspects of God's glory, whereas opposed to demons would reflect aspects of God's wrath. And it was really an awesome study on the image of uh, kind of bearing the image of God. Yeah, and his characteristics in that sense. Obviously, there is good debate to be had about whether or not that angel is the Lord. There's certainly uh, loose messianic and divine attributes given to the angel, but not exclusive. The angel's not called eternal. The angel's not called creator. The angel's not called the source of life, things that would only apply to Jesus. Mm -hmm. But if, on the other hand, we see aspects compared to God, like, for example, uh, him being clothed with a cloud, Psalm 68 and verse 4 notes that God's the one who rides the clouds. Uh, his face shining like the sun, Jesus reflected those characteristics in his transfiguration, the earth being under his feet, noting in Ephesians 1.22. But the problem is those aren't all exclusive things. All of the heavenly creatures reflect aspects of God's glory in some way. So uh, we encourage you to listen to that study again to clarify those points and the significance of those themes. But starting off our uh, topic in chapter 10, the title we've given it is Need to Know. We're going to learn how to handle controversy when it comes to biblical truths. Obviously, the book of Revelation is a complicated book. It's not hard to understand, but it needs to be brought with your brain if you're going to grasp everything it's trying to say. And in this study, we're going to essentially learn how to handle mysteries, things that we don't know, and how to properly handle that, how to handle debatable issues, what we can agree upon, disagree, or disagree on agreeably, and then finally the things that we can know if we're willing to come to the Bible in order. If you don't read the first 65 books, the 66 is going to leave you behind. So starting, of course, with that angel, what are the two views? As talked about last week, some people think this is an appearance of our Lord. Others think that it's just an angel, but certainly a very mighty one. How should we handle that in terms of controversy? It's just simply knowing your reasons for them, making sure they're biblical, and settling it on that, knowing that this doesn't change whether or not Jesus is Lord of your life, that the Bible is your authority on what he's like and what he isn't, and, of course, how to get to heaven. When it comes to the things that we can't know, however, and before we get into that, I'll let you add anything else that you'd like to say, but uh, just noting that point, this angel setting up a theme. We don't know exactly who he is, 
but we are given hints. And people take both sides, and they're allowed. I'm going to read Revelation 10. <laughs> Starting in verse 1 or verse 4? Uh, I'll start in verse 4, since we already got through the, the, the first few verses. It says, Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices... I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be no or delay no longer. So why don't we just stop right there? And just kind of target this verse 4. All right, yeah. Uh, why tell us about the seven thunders if we aren't told what they're going to say? Yeah, yeah, what's that about? Well, it's an interesting, I think, heart check for those coming to the text, because if we're told the things that we can't know, that is like what we started with in the study, a good check for our pride. No, I'm, I'm coming to this book because I want to know the things I don't know, but do you need to know everything? Or are you content to know what God is letting you know? Now, when people take this text and they come to this essentially roadblock of understanding, where John's just literally told, full stop, don't write down what these things uttered, well, then why tell us about it? Well, it's interesting because some people will take that as a challenge and say that, oh, well, what you don't realize is that John actually did immediately disobey what the voice from heaven told him and wrote them down in code. And for 10 easy payments of $7.99, you could know too, as you buy my series. You get the idea, but the problem is this kind of language, just seal the, those things up, don't write them. That's been used in the Bible before. In the book of Daniel, chapter 12, there were things that are still a mystery even to us today, especially to Daniel at the time he was writing these things, where he was told about the amount of days in which the end of these things, what things, probably the chapter 10 through 11 things, will be. And he says, seal them up, for they will not be known until the time of the end. Since we're not at the end, but in the middle, wherever that may be, then we have to be content with that. We have to say, okay, so given how Daniel was addressed, can I say, okay, what am I told? Can I respect what I am told? And what's key about that as well is the respect you have for what you aren't told is also an extension of your respect for the things that you aren't. And that's going to be key because my heart and goal shouldn't be to learn things about God, it's to know God. And if my heart check essentially in these passages is to say, okay, I know this much about him, but, uh, you know, there's aspects that I don't understand. And we get the, we started off with the worship song regarding the Trinity. I can grasp what that means, but how that works, not a lot to compare it to. We're trying to round off infinity. But if on the other hand, I'd say, you know, I can accept these things about God because what he's told me is enough. Well, that would say enough about a heart to say, you know, God knows what I need to know, hmm. and I can settle for that. Are we told about the seven thunders? To check my heart. You know, what, what do you think the seven thunders are? The, it says, the seven th thunders uttered their voices. You don't know. I don't know. Yeah, and we don't know. And that's okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's, that's a good answer. You know, some people look at, like, um, the reason why I ask it is because there's, there's some psalms 
that when you read through the Psalms, like Psalm 29, I think of that Psalm especially, it talks about God, it always talks about God's kind of voice and being like a thunder. Yeah, Habakkuk chapter 3, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration or uh, towards the end of his earthly ministry, the Father spoke from heaven answering him, Father, glorify your name. He says, I have both glorify it and will glorify it again. Some of the people said, oh, it thundered. Some people said, oh, an angel spoke to him. But Jesus said, this was not for my sake, but for yours. Yeah. So I find it interesting. Just and, and again, that number seven keeps creeping up over and over and over yeah. in the book. Um, so I think it's something. there's something there to that, that God's voice definitely is like that. I think of another passage in Deuteronomy chapter 29 that I've always found really fascinating and kind of relating to this, um, this kind of sealing up of what is being said. And it says there in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of his law. So if we can be content with what has been revealed, as Deuteronomy stated, that is supposed to be enough. But if on the other hand we were told Quite frankly, it wouldn't make sense to us anyway, and might either be misapplied, might be uh, wholly misunderstood and dismissed by the time it is relevant, or it can kill two birds with one stone, give us an opportunity to trust the author. Yeah, so everybody, you know, write a little note, like when you get to heaven, this is one of the things you're going to want to ask God about. Hey, what was the seven thunders? Like, what was actually uttered there? You know, that might be one of the questions that we ask when we get there. So now we get into the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Mm -hmm. And... Um, do you want to break that down a little bit? Yeah, the oath that he takes in not only swearing by the Most High, but not there being a delay, it goes on in verse 7 to say, in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. So essentially there's this setup that's being made. Uh, we're definitely given a chronology for the book of Revelation, that we're still in that time frame uh, five or six out of the seven trumpet judgments have sounded when the seventh, which hasn't sounded yet, otherwise this angel is speaking out of turn, when that takes place, mm-hmm. after this pronouncement, after this oath, there will be a finishing mm-hmm. of what is called the mystery of God. Now, your um, first Bible teacher and mentor, Dave Gusick, in his commentary, Enduring Word, highly recommended, by the way, uh, he made a few comparisons to how this word mystery of God is used, which puts us in the second camp, not just the things we can't know, like the seven thunders. What about the things that we could know, noting similar themes? Uh, For example, and you guys taking notes can write this down, in Romans chapter 11, in verse 25, the complete salvation of Israel is noted as the mystery of God, and noting that they haven't all yet been saved, but that mystery, that completed work of God in Israel for their salvation is used there. Now, not just for Israel, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 11, the purpose of the church regarding the salvation of the world, to make known what Christ has done, that is also referred to as a mystery, something not yet fulfilled, but about to be. In the book of Romans, again, chapter 11, or excuse me, in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 27 through chapter 2 and verse 3, the Holy Spirit's relationship with us, again, 
common themes here, all pertaining to salvation. Even Colossians 4 and verse 3 refers to the mystery of God as salvation itself. So in all of these different uses of this mystery of God, it's always in the context of salvation, and it's always in regard to something that is not yet complete. So if there is this theme that can be taken, he's saying this oath of what essentially makes up 76% uh, of the whole book, making a reference to the Old and New Testament books that came before it, the purposes of God have not yet been fulfilled, but in regard to mankind's salvation, a line in the sand is about to be drawn. And when? That seventh trumpet sounding. That is when, and we'll get to this more at the end of chapter 11, the kingdom of God is declared. That God's ruling, God's reigning, God's enforcing of his will on this earth will finally be fulfilled once again. Hmm. Not yet, but it's about to be. And he makes an oath that when that trumpet sounds, there would no longer be a delay. And given the trend of how the mystery of God is used in passages that came before it, we gave four examples and we can do others, this theme continues on. So the salvation of mankind and also the culmination of mankind's rejection. Everyone who will make a decision will, and those who have made a decision against will also have. Mm -hmm. So I, I love this. I love the action of the angel standing because it could be, you know, sometimes we, we have to look at the Bible, look at the New Testament, see how, you know, the word standing is used as opposed to sitting. And, you know, sometimes you'll see like Christ seated at the right hand, Christ standing. I think it's when Stephen, the martyr, is dying in yeah. the book of Acts. Jesus is seed, seen as standing at the right hand. Uh, kind of standing is this idea of action. You know, Jesus is receiving the martyr who's going to be in heaven with him. And, you know, Jesus isn't seated when the martyrs go through their pain and their suffering and the persecution. I was just reading that in Nigeria over the last like eight years, it was 42,000 Christians have been slaughtered mm -hmm. in that country. And, you know, I don't think of Jesus sitting down, you know, but I, I see him in the book of Acts as standing, you know what I mean? He's, he's very much aware, you know, of the pain and the trial that people go through. And even in this time, you know, I, I, I just see this amazing action of God through this angel that's standing. And I, I take a lot of comfort in that, that the angel is standing, that there's action happening. You know, we all want to see justice in the world. We all want to see things made right. And here we're seeing it made right. There's an angel standing on one foot on, in the sea, one foot on the land. And I find that being really relevant too. Uh, the idea that everything, God is, God is taking care of everything. What's in the sea, what's in the land, the creation, God is overseeing this. He sees what's going on. I, I also was talking to Sean about how we're going to see that the Antichrist, it comes up out of the, the sea. That's right. And we're going to see the false prophet comes up out of the people, out of the, the land. land. Yep. Yeah, and we're going to see it's interesting parallel, a little, little. I think there's something mimicking again happening. We see a lot of mimicking going on in the book of Revelation with the Antichrist and the false system of the world. It is trying to replicate the action of God. Have you ever heard like governments, people are looking at the government as God? Have you ever heard that term today? 
People are looking at the government as God. Meaning when you have a secular society, you no longer look to God to regulate the human heart. You now have to look to a human organization to regulate humanity. Right? If you're going to throw out God, you know, and you're going to throw out Ten Commandments and you're going to throw out, you know, that, then, then all you have is human beings to regulate human beings. But, right? You're asking the impossible, though. How can you ask a, a fallible human being to regulate human beings? I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to always go downhill. But that's, that's kind of what I see going on as a mimicking. So I just wanted to point that to you. I find that kind of interested, interesting in the passage at the angels on those, those two areas. So let me go on and read further on. Okay, so the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Interesting. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, <laughs> you, you must, must prophesy, prophesy right? Again, <laughs> yeah, again. To many peoples, nations, and t- uh, and, kings. And I wonder what John's reaction to that was. I think he would have said, this sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. This sounds really familiar, mm-hmm. right? Right, yeah. Again, the angel was a topic that could be clarified more. In the need-to-know study we're formatting here for you all, the idea that we could know more but can allow for disagreement as far as the identity, the significance, you know, all those other interesting things, the mystery of God, what's that in reference to? We can leave it open. As far as the seven thunders, it isn't clarified intentionally. The little book and John's interaction with it is a direct quotation, repeating the actions that were done before by a prophet named Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel, for those of you who don't know, it's a Old Testament major prophet. Uh, the major prophets of the Old Testament, not because their message was somehow more significant it than Micah major. or Amos. No, it's just <laughs> a bigger book, right? 40 plus chapters. But when we're talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, those major prophets in length, compared to the minor prophets, just again, in length. Uh, his prophecy begins, and again, historically, uh, Ezekiel 1, that's, that's an acid trip, man. Uh, the, the heavenly creatures, rather, that he sees. Now, was, I've been on acid, but I Did you I've see never, any of the seraphim? I didn't, I didn't see anything from Ezekiel <laughs> chapter 1. It's just but wheels within I mean, wheels. If you guys want to talk about some of that stuff, no, I'm just joking. I mean, I'm, I'm telling the truth. I mean, I have, but I never saw Ezekiel 1. No, <laughs> no, he saw these amazing heavenly creatures that are all, and feel free to ask us in our radio program, but magnificent examples of the glory of God. Ezekiel has been taken away into captivity yes. in Babylon, and Israel is going to be there for the next 70 years. Now, in the ancient world, they thought their gods were to confined to borders. The God of Israel controls Israel. And if he wants to control more territory, then Israel has to conquer more territory. That represents and reflects their God. But what's interesting is that when Dan, or Ezekiel rather, is in a foreign land, God's throne appears to him. And he's like, 
shouldn't you be over there, like way <laughs> over there? And these creatures, not just the cherubim, which we've read about in Revelation 4, but these very unique creatures, they're, they're not given a name. They're just called wheels within wheels. They got eyeballs all around and within. They're constantly spinning and looks like they're on fire. And you're just like, oh my goodness, what did I eat? And it was a reflection of God's <laughs> omniscience, his knowing of everything, seeing everything. Yeah. And he had not forsaken his people. And in chapter 2, he continues on this point and explains, don't start screaming, I'm still here. Regardless of whether you're in Israel or not, I'm still God. And in chapter 3, we get into what Ezekiel is supposed to do with this information. And it begins in verse 1 by saying, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So he opened his mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Boy, that sounds familiar. Then he said to me, Son of man, here's the explanation, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language. You're not speaking to the Babylonians. You don't have to learn uh, 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 Chaldean or whatever. He says, but to the house of Israel, not to many people of unfamiliar speech, hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. That would be Daniel's job later. But note, the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like adamant stone have I made your face strong against their faces. And go on it goes. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears, and go get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord, whatever they hear or whether they refuse. So definitely parallels, not just in the symbol, but also in the explanation. Now, you all remember, we've repeated this point over and over again. In Revelation, it's the last book of the Bible for a reason. If it hasn't been explained, it's about to be. If it has been explained before, it won't be. And we want to keep that interpretation method key in mind here because it's going to come in handy in the next three chapters. John, and compared to Ezekiel, is a word-for-word repeating of actions. But as far as the explanation is concerned, his interactions with the book as being sweet, but the rejection of it being bitter, no explanation of its significance is given to John. So what do we assume? It's the same. We've been given this explanation before, and it assumes you know that. You read Ezekiel before you read Revelation. You read the, the maybe 28th book Did you guys read 66th. Ezekiel before we got in Revelation? I hope so, Everybody's like, going to oh, miss no. something. <laughs> <laughs> so note this. John's addressed the same way that Ezekiel begins to be. The significance of this is also split like the identity of the angel, and note as well, just as secondary of an issue. The first view, and we want you to be informed about this, we'll make sure that we clarify both reasons fairly, is the reference to John eating this book is about to be, the significance of it, is about to be described in the next chapter. You're going to prophesy again. 
And for those of you who know Revelation 11, you know that it's the introduction of the two witnesses. Some people believe this is John being anointed as one of those witnesses. However, the problem with that, and again, they note uh, it's not just a non sequitur out of nowhere, again, is a term of emphasis as having a future ministry beyond the writing of Revelation. He's being equipped for that. But the problem with it is that Ezekiel's interaction with the scroll isn't explained this way in the Old Testament. No one thinks that Ezekiel's the second witness. So claiming that being commanded to eat the scroll means you're being anointed as one of the two witnesses is applied inconsistently. We want to avoid that. Mm -hmm. The second view, and this is the view that I hold, perhaps you do as well, otherwise we might have a debate here, is that this is referring to the ministry of John like Ezekiel. That the same significance, the same application, the same definition is what's applied. They were both being used to communicate God's word, just flat. And whether or not people listen to it, you just do it. I've made your forehead hard against them. If they're, yeah, if they're not going to bother you, I've equipped you with basically the, uh, <laughs> the sternness of personality to put up with the trolls, right? Yes. And again, the reasons for this is that the context of the passage, quoting Ezekiel 3, bears no future significance beyond the fact that their writings would have been handled like anything else God was spoken. Saying, Revelation, John, you just share what I give you. People aren't going to like it. You aren't going to like the implications of it. But note, this is my word. You teach it. The same thing he said to Ezekiel. However, we'll note both. The problems with that interpretation is, in the immediate literary context, the first view also has merit. So what do we do? Well, how do we handle controversy? You allow for both so long as it doesn't violate key principles. Whether or not John's going to be one of the two witnesses or not does not make someone less of a Christian. Whether or not John is being called and equipped to share God's word is something not only we both believe in, but is not going to be controversial, at least beyond necessity. So with all this being stated, and again, making the point, what do you think, as far as the greater scope of all of these things, with Ezekiel being quoted, with the angel and all of his you know, special effects and so forth. The significance of all these things, people can take it a number of different ways. And when given lots of options, we don't do so good because we worry we might leave behind the better one. Obviously, if someone makes a decision that has no long-term consequences, what do we call that? Inconsequential. It's not that big a deal. If someone's dealing with salvation, someone's dealing with the authority of Scripture, the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, that's a problem. But nothing in these passages and the interpretations therein are a big deal. Obviously, someone writes down what God deliberately told them not to say, then we could have a conversation. But what do you think as far as Ezekiel? Do you think that's pretty plain as it's stated? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. Um, you know, it's such, a, it's such a neat parallel passage, and I love the book of Ezekiel. He will strengthen, mm -hmm. is what his word says. It's such a beautiful his book. Name, yeah. um, um, but let me just go over what I just find so fascinating. First, I find it so neat. The angel raises his right hand, and it's kind of just so, it reminds me of a courtroom almost. Put your hand on the Bible, raise your right hand. You know, do you solemnly swear? 
you know, it, it seems like it's just, we, we've taken that right out of this. The angel here raises his right hand, swears to the Lord, says, you know, John, take this little scroll. What is the little scroll? Is it the gospel? Some people have said that. It's the gospel message. John's going to proclaim the gospel message, you know, the word of Christ, uh, so to speak. Jesus is the word made flesh. Um, you know, when we're sharing the word of God, we're sharing God, you know, Jesus's words, man. And, um, you know, that kind of thing. But what I find it very applicable in this whole section is that when we take in God's word, I think it is like this too. There's an effect that divine, the divine word has on us as believers. Meaning when, the, when God's word enters into us, there is a sweetness to it. But they're also, just like Jeremiah 15 talks about that. I ate your word and it was, what does he say? It was like honey. Yeah, it was like honey. It was the most precious thing. More, it was better than my necessary food. Yeah, Job said that. Yeah, Job says that. It's, it's better. You know, so Jeremiah 15, Job talks about that kind of idea. You know, partaking of it so sweet. But yet there's a, a division. There is a slicing. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. There is a cutting that takes place when we are going to give out the divine word. And now this is what I find really applicable um, to our life, and that is the divine word can cause us not only something sweet, not only something so joyful, but it also can bring incredible distress. It can bring incredible distress conflict. When you share the word, there is a sweetness to it, but man, there can be ramifications to you sharing the scripture in relating the word of God in your culture. And that kind of division is something that I find is so necessary that God is doing in us. And some people find this uncomfortable. And we live in a world where whenever distress hits us as human beings, we think something's necessarily wrong. And so we reach for something in the medicine cabinet, or we reach for something in the refrigerator, or we reach for something on the internet to t try to help us we think that the sign of distress, of trial, of tribulation, that something is wrong, but not necessarily. And so I want to read something that I find so cool that Blaise Pascal wrote. And it's about this, about how the Word of God does have this dual effect in our life. Just as John's, say, you know, giving this command, hey, take the scroll, you know, eat, the, you know, eat it. And it's going to be honey, but it's also going to be bitter. There's also going to be a bitterness to this, you know. And remember, John's in, you know, getting a vision, obviously, of the tribulation period, a pretty intense time. Now, Blaise Pascal wrote this 400 years ago. It is true that there is difficulty in entering upon the pious or the sanctified or the virtuous life, mm. that it's difficult entering into this. But this difficulty does not come from the, the, the piety which is beginning to exist within us, meaning God's doing a work in us, but from the impiety which is still there in us. 
meaning there's something still within us that creates this division that's going on in us, this battle that's taking place. Have you ever read the book of Galatians where it talks about there's a war between the flesh and the spirit, right? The fruits of the spirit are, right? The works of the flesh are, you guys know what the passage. naturally occur to me. Yeah, yeah that's right. So this is what he's talking about. He says, if our senses were not opposed to penitence or repentance or holiness, if our senses were not opposed to holiness, if our corruption were not opposed to the purity of God, there would be in that nothing difficult for us. Meaning if our senses weren't opposed to this holiness, we would be fine. But there is something that's opposed to the holiness of God. When the word of God hits us, something happens. God shows me his goodness. I'm like, hey, that's good. I'm not. <laughs> that's right. You read the Ten Commandments and you go, that's so right. It's so right not to commit adultery. It is so right not to do that. But then there's that reality of, man, I have broke that. And, and so Pascal's bringing this out. Now, he says that we suffer only in proportion as vice which is natural to us, resisting supernatural grace. Our heart feels itself torn between these contrary efforts, but it would be quite unjust to impute this violence to God who is drawing us to him instead of attributing it to the world which is holding us back. It is like a child whom his mother snatches from the hands of thieves. He must love in the pain he is suffering the loving and legitimate violence of her, the mom, who procures his liberty. The mom is dragging the child to freedom, but there's a battle, right? And detest only the injurious and tyrannical violence of those who are holding him unjustly. There is another party that is trying to bring you down. Does that make sense? Trying to hold on to you. You got two people, a tug of war going on right? But the mom loves the child. The child might interpret it that something's wrong. Why is my mom pulling on me that hard? But the mom is pulling that hard to procure the liberty of the child. And that's what God's doing in us through his word and through this action of his word in us. There is the difficulty that's going on in us. And Jesus talks about this. So this is what Pascal gets to. The cruelest war which God can bring to mankind in this life, the cruelest war that God can bring to mankind in this life is to leave us without that war which he came to bring. See, Jesus said, I, have came, I came not to send peace, but a sword in Matthew chapter 10. See, that's the best war God could give. That's grace. When you are in the battle, that is grace. When God's word hits you, and it is like honey, but man, it is bitter too. There, that is God's wonderful grace in your life. That is the sword which Jesus has come to bring. He has come to bring that division in your life. When the word of God springs up in you, and you start sharing God's word with your family, and your, word, your family starts hating you, they start disliking you. That is the, the grace of God working in your life. 
That is God's work, even though it brings that bitterness to you. God is doing a work. The world wants to pull you back so you feel the tug, you know, to go back into the, into the world, to let up maybe, you know. And this is what Paul talks about in the book of 1 Corinthians that I found so fascinating along with that Blaise Pascal quote, and that is this. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, it says the word, the gospel, is the aroma of death to those who are perishing. Meaning the word of God is something that is, you know, when you are sharing the word of God, it is like death to those who are perishing. I mean, they smell you and they go, yuck. You know, it might be bitter. You know, it might, you know, and you, you might experience that bitterness. So I think John within the tribulation takes the scroll and when he eats it, like Ezekiel, it's sweet, but there's a bitterness to it. There is, there is uh, the ramifications of knowing the word of God. It is a work of grace to experience this, this division that's going on, this, this tug of war that's happening within. But I find that John, uh, you know, is doing it. And, that, and I want to do it too. I want to be that person who doesn't take the... Um, distresses of walking the Christian life, the tribulations that we are promised by Jesus. And I don't want to reach for something. I want to stay, I want to understand that this is the, this is the sword that Jesus has come to bring. This is what he came to bring in my life, yeah. this trial. Yeah, the necessary bitterness that comes with good medicine. Right. It's understanding it's dealing with something. I don't feel these symptoms, this sickness, because necessarily the virus, my body's doing this to purge the virus so it doesn't kill me. Yeah. And just bringing this all back in, yeah, this yeah, theme yeah. of, uh, again, we'll just build on that point again because it's so important, not just quotations, not just controversy, not even just mystery, but conviction. How do we handle those things? Mm -hmm. uh, you talk to people all the time who are torn between not only what I know to do, but I will not to do, that yeah. which I hate, that I do. We see in the Christian life, it's one thing to you know just uh, play the scholar and go, okay, I understand uh, the significance of all these themes, but when it's applied to our lives, how does that bitterness actually seem worthwhile? And I think what's key is understanding it's the same answer as all the intellectual issues. When we deal with controversy, we disagree agreeably about issues that aren't essential. We handle mystery. We come to Scripture willing to accept what God tells you and what He doesn't. And when we handle quotations, are we familiar enough with the Bible to point us to where we recognize when it's quoting something else? Also with conviction, do we trust that this medicine's bitterness will actually make me better? Do we believe that the hell that this world puts us through will ultimately result in heaven on the other side? Do I trust that the literal crucifixion of our Lord is something I would, wor I would consider worth modeling if it means mere association with the perfect man? Do I trust that he's worthwhile? And that's what Hebrews 11.6 is pointing out. Well, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, it's important, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, if I diligently seek him, it's going to have honey, and it's going to be bitter, sometimes more the latter. 
But if I ask myself, is this worthwhile? And had a um, ear infection a while back, and they gave me antibiotics that made me sick, literally, for a week. But it was purging poison that was rather close to my brain mm -hmm. for a greater good. And I recognized I'd rather take the week off of work and just suffer sweaty in my bed with my, my cat lying on my leg because that's normal and just say, okay, this is worth it. I'm willing to trust the medicine. How much more would I trust a chemical as opposed to the true and living God? So reflection of trust, faith means trust with reason. And if we know the reasons to trust what God has said, then we have that many reasons to trust the mysteries and the unwritten things he hasn't. Hmm. Anything more you want to add before we pray out? Um, I would say that, you know, if you're wondering, like, what to hold on to in times of distress, you know, in, in sharing the word, if you're scared to share the word because you're afraid of that sword, um, this is why the letters to the seven churches are written, because they each have a wonderful promise at the end of them. Uh, for us in the church. And I just flipped over back to Revelation to the early parts where it says, you know, uh, to him who overcomes, I will give uh, him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And you go over the end of these, these letters to these churches, and they each have these promises. Um, and this is something that we are to hold on to, and this is what the Christian is always doing, is we are living for God's kingdom. We are Christians. We are looking to Christ, and we're looking for his kingdom to come. I was listening to a commentator today talking about politics, and he was talking about his philosophy that we really can achieve a, a utopian society here on earth. And... And I just thought, wow, that's, that's so amazing when you, for someone to think that way, that, hey, we really can achieve a utopian society, like a perfect society here on the earth um, w amongst ourselves as human beings, um, being the, the people to achieve this. When I look at, the reason why I find it so fascinating is because human history would tell us that humans just tend to really mess up in just about everything, <laughs> you know? And it's like, if we have any good technology, we will, we will blow things up, we will implode anything, you know? That's what we do. <clears throat> but in, in Christianity, Jesus calls us to seek first the kingdom of God, his kingdom, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, your kingdom coming. And, and sometimes I think that what prevents us from taking in the word and then sharing that word and in a sense prophesying ourselves to our nation, to our culture, to our society is we have our anchor just too rooted in this soil. You know, your house is too, you, you love your house too much. I love my car too much. I love my guitars too much. I love this too much. You know, I'm speaking of things that maybe, you know, are in my world you know, but you think of your own world, you know, what am I, what am I willing to lose my home? Am I willing to lose my house? Am I willing to lose my family? Am I willing, you know, Psalm 73, 25 and 26, 
My heart and flesh will fail. But God is the strength and my portion forever. Do I realize that people's heart and flesh will fail me? But God is the strength of my portion forever. You know, whom have I in heaven but you? And on the earth, there's nothing I desire besides you. Right? That's how the psalmist writes this. Right? Whom have I in heaven but you? The answer is what? Nobody. Nobody. Right? Whom have I in heaven but you? And on the earth, there's no one besides you that I want. Right? It's that focus. Then, it's, then he goes into my heart and flesh will fail. And for me, I have to put people in there all, every day. You know, Sylvia's heart and flesh will fail. Bo James's heart and flesh will fail. April's heart and flesh will fail. Literally. It's not, it's not just metaphorically here. People's heart will fail you. They have a heart attack and die. You know? People's heart and flesh will fail, but God is the strength of my portion forever. That's how God is glorified. You see, God is, shines in that moment. Why? Because he's seen as greater than anything. He's seen as greater than my home. He's seen as greater than my wife. He's seen as greater than my kids. Because he is greater. See, and that's what the Bible keeps saying. He is greater There is not to be any idol in my life. And so the struggle we have in sometimes fulfilling this great commission that John has, even in the last, this last days, to me, it's, you know, you know, what did, what did they say last week in the message? You know, they talked about, I think, idolatry a little bit, but what did John say? Hey, you know, in the book of John, 1 John, I think it's 2 John chapter, the very last verse, or it might be 3 John, the very last verse. But it says, dear children, keep yourself from idols. You know, and I think idols do come in all kinds of interesting, interesting forms, you know. They seem so right, but they can really be wrong. So, you know, to help us be prevented from going in those directions, You know, we need to always bring everything before the Lord uh, and realize that, you know, God has given us wonderful things in our life, but those things can't be everything. You know, sharing the gospel as a Christian, that's got to be everything. That is everything. Fulfilling the mystery of God, joining that angel's oath, knowing he was able to swear by it because he trusted the one who would see it through. Yeah, amen. Great. Thanks, Sean for wrapping that up, bro. <laughs> yeah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you for just this Bible study and so many of the interesting things that are in it. It, it, it fascinates us. It, it uh, certainly uh, intrigues our mind to wonder what exactly was that scroll or what exactly is the thunders. And Lord, all we can do is come to your word and And as we've talked about, uh, just remember that there's certain things that have been revealed to us and that we are to take those things in. And there's certain things that haven't been revealed and we are to trust you with them. We pray that, uh, Father, we would not only believe that you exist, but we would believe that you are the rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And we want to be those who diligently seek you in our life. Help us to, Father, uh, Father, not to fall into uh, idolatry. Help us not to anchor put our anchor so rooted on this 
uh, in this way, in this world. But help us, Father, to be uh, looking forward to the blessed hope, the great glorious appearing of our God and Savior. And help us, Father, to get out your word, to share with others, to have compassion on people in our city, uh, that we go throughout our day, whether at work or at home, in our neighborhoods, that we be always in prayer for the people that we see and that we're around. Pray for opportunities to share, open doors, uh, Lord, to get the message out of your love, of the work you've done for them, the salvation message of the gospel. Uh, Father, and and give us a boldness and a, create, a courage uh, and, and help us, Father, to follow you, uh, knowing that you do have great rewards for us, Lord, and that reward, especially just being in your presence, just being with you, uh, Lord, what peace there is in you and in your word. I pray for those who are in trials right now, suffering, maybe uh, going through uh, mental issues or going through the uh, just sicknesses, that, Father, you would help them, touch them, meet them right where they're at, that your Holy Spirit would fill them full, Lord, their cup to overflowing, uh, Lord, that you would do a great work of healing in, in our lives as your people. Father, we need a touch from you. Help us, Father, not to grow bitter or weary in doing good, but help us, Father, press on. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.